When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Judy L. Mandel, author of White Flag, a memoir. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Great. I wonder if you could begin by saying a few words about yourself and how you began this project. Um, well, I'm, I've been a writer for uh, quite a while. This is my second, my second book. Uh, my first book was called Replacement Child. And uh, that was, uh, you know, the story of my family, really, which relates to this, this new book, White Flag, in that uh, that was um, the story of how my family survived a plane crash in 1952, how one of my sisters was killed in that crash. Um, the other sister who was badly burned in that crash is uh, was the mother of um, my niece, Cheryl, who's featured in White Flag. So it's a continuing story um, that does bring up issues like generational trauma um, that can affect um, propensity for substance use disorder. I wonder if you could tell us Something about Cheryl. Let's start with the good memories. Sure, sure. Cheryl was very um, loving and funny and um, enjoyed enjoyed everything in her life. Um, you know, she, she helped her, her grandparents when she was well. She helped her mother when she was well. Um, she liked to try out the new recipes from her grandma. Um, so she had that little domestic side of her, but she was, uh, she was a bookworm. She was always reading books and, uh, you know, we kind of bonded over that too. So those are the good memories and I still have those, of course. When you think about Cheryl and addiction and you talk about the trauma, can you tell us more about the plane crash? Sure. Um, this was a series of plane crashes in, um, Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, within eight weeks, there were three crashes, and um, finally they, they did close Newark Airport for 
um, a few months um, trying to figure out what had happened. So this was the second of those three um, plane crashes. And um, the the plane, you know, took off the, the top of the um, building they were living in, the apartment building. Um, they were on the second floor and dumped jet fuel into that apartment, which, you know, exploded into flames. Um, my mother saved three people that day. She saved my sister, Linda, who was very badly burned. She was two years old. Um, a friend of my other sister, Donna's, who was seven, who did not survive the plane crash. Um, and also her, her mother was in, um, my mother's mother was living with them and she got her out. So the only one she could not save was, was her daughter, Donna, who was trapped under a ceiling beam. Um, so anyway, that, that episode in our lives, which was before I was born, certainly, certainly colored, um, all of our lives. You know, you talk about your sister dealing with, um, the pain after the explosion. How did that impact her life and her daughter's life? Well, um, Linda was, as I said, two years old. She was, she barely survived that. Um, she was, um, had third degree burns over, you know, 80% of her body, they tell me. And, uh, you know, it was very, very iffy whether she would survive that. She was only two, remember, very small little baby. Um, she had to have surgeries for, you know, every year she would go into the hospital for some reconstructive surgery. Um, she was badly scarred, um, which certainly affected her life. Um, she had, I think she had chronic pain from, you know, from that onward in her life. And that necessarily, you know, affects your children. Um, I know everybody was so excited when she could have children because we didn't think she could um, after all of the surgeries and radiation and all of that. Um, but it does, it does filter down through the generations. And, you know, the more research I did about epigenetics and transgenerational trauma, the more I understood that this doesn't go away. Now, you talk about Cheryl, and you start talking about um, how you start writing her in the letters. How did you come up with that idea to incorporate the letters? Into the book? Yes. Well, it, it seemed like it's it was such a big part of telling the story. And you know, understanding where where we were in that in that story, um, to see where she where she was and how we kind of rekindled our relationship even when she was in prison through our letters, it's it seemed such an integral part of and and being able to bring her into the story, even though I you know I couldn't couldn't really bring her into the story fully, but that was a way to do it. That and her Facebook posts. And, um, you know, some of those interchanges we had, um, in our video chats, you know, when she was in prison, you know, I thought this is a way to, you know, bring Cheryl, you know, right into the story, which I felt was important. You write about, you put money into her account. Is this something that a lot of families deal with when they're dealing with a person who's, you know, in prison, has an addiction problem? 
I think uh, I think everybody who has a loved one in who's incarcerated, you know, struggles with, um, you know, do you put money in their commissary? And I, I was advised, yes, you put money in their commissary because it's the only way they can get, you know, things that make their life a little more comfortable. I mean, things like shampoo and, you know, uh, necessary things that you, that you really need. Um, and some things like, you know, uh, soda, you know, small little comforts. So that was necessary. I, I felt that some of it was, um, you know, preying on, on people who had incarcerated loved ones, things like, you know, the phone system and the video chats were unnecessarily, you know, expensive for people. And I'm sure there are people that could not do that. And, you know, I was grateful that I could, but it, it really kind of angered me that they were preying on people in this way. And um, I don't know that that's changed. Now, from your research, you had a lot of clues about addiction. And these clues were really important in the story because if you didn't understand addiction, you could understand it by looking at some of the clues that you gave us. Can you go over some of the things that you found? Sure. Um, and, and I was you know, I use my whiteboard. I think that's what you're talking about. I use my whiteboard to, you know, um, write down the, the clues that, that, um, helped me, helped me understand what had happened. And I think this is a question that everyone who has a loved one who has substance use disorder asks that question, you know, what happened? You know, why did, why did this happen? Um, why did they start using the drug at, or drugs and why couldn't they stop? And the reasons are, there are a lot of reasons which are physical and brain chemistry, which changes with the use of drugs. As I mentioned, generational trauma may be a part of it or trauma, immediate trauma. Um, I found that, that there was a case of abuse, child abuse, um, sexual abuse for Cheryl when she was young. And that certainly leads, you know, it, it, it's an ingredient. It's an ingredient. Um, so the more I found out and the more I put together those clues, um, the more it made sense. And I almost felt like she didn't have as much a chance as I thought she did. When she would write you and tell you that all the plans that she had once she got out, did you believe that all of these things could occur? I wanted to. I certainly wanted to more than anything wanted to think that, you know, this was going to be fine. She was going to get a job. She was going to find a great place to live. She had, you know, at one point she told me about a boyfriend that was, you know, going to help her. And um, it turned out to be, you know, a facade. And as much as you, you know, you want to believe this stuff, um, you have to check it out. You have to be realistic when, when you listen. Um, if you know, that the, this person in your life has substance use disorder. You have to, you know, listen to to the words, but look at the what happens and the reality. You know, you talk about the fact that she was uh, diagnosed with depression in prison. Mm -hmm. So did you have any clues, you know, perhaps knowing that she had depression all along or was this just something new? Well, you know what? I've recently found out um, through my other niece, her sister, that she that they knew she did have depression when she was growing up. Um, I think it was treated intermittently, 
Um, but certainly not fully until, you know, she got some medications when she was in prison, <clears throat> which is unfortunate because I think, you know, um, self-medicating is a big part of substance use disorder when there's um, an issue like depression that people are looking for relief from that and they'll find it wherever they can. Now, let's go back to Linda, your sister's life. Your parents helped her tremendously. What what was really going on there that caused a lot of chaos? Um, well, I, I think one of the issues with my sister Linda was she she didn't feel worthy. You know, she she her self worth was was low. Um, and you know, back then we didn't, we didn't go for counseling. We didn't, we didn't, um, go for family counseling or she certainly could have used, used that. And so could I have used that. Um, so I think, you know, the issue of self-worth is, is a huge issue for, especially someone who's challenged, who she had, you know, um, physical, um, her scars were certainly, you know, apparent to anyone immediately. And, um, it had a big effect on her life, as you can imagine. Now, let's look at the issue of Cheryl being in prison and jail. What were some of the things that you understood about a person who has an addiction problem? Is that the best place for them? I don't think so. Um, I, you know, I think that that's the wrong way to approach um, substance use disorder. Locking people up does not does not help. Um, especially if there's no real help in in the prison. There, I know one of the she was in prison in both Ohio and Kentucky, and what she told me about Ohio was there was a, a program for recovery, and I think she made some headway there. And then they transferred her for whatever reason I don't even know why um, to a prison in Kentucky where there was nothing, you know, absolutely, you know, no help before she before she was released. Um, so I think that that set her back. And I think that treating people um, by locking them up is just the wrong way to approach this very, very important issue. Now, you tell us about the healing place. Was that a good place for Lynn, uh, for Cheryl at that time? Well, you know, I was told it was one of the best places in Louisville um, for people that they did have um some recovery, um, programs. And, um, she, I was told that she was lucky to get a bed there because there weren't that many beds and they did get her in there. But later I found she didn't take advantage of what they had there. There, you know, she met a friend actually later who said, you know, when she had left the, the healing place, come back in and I'll get you, I'll get you back in the program. It's really helping me and I can mentor you. And she didn't do it. <clears throat> for whatever reason, um, she resisted a lot of, you know, a lot of the help that was available, which I, you know, which what worried me at the time. Um, but a lot of it was the 12 step programs, which she did resist, um, that it wasn't, she told me it wasn't for her and maybe it wasn't. And there was nothing else for her to, to, to have, to, to help her. Um, so yeah, I think the healing place was probably, a decent place. It was, you know, a halfway house and they, they did have some programs. Um, I have no, I, I really don't know if it was, you know, the best place for her to be. 
Now, you also talk about your process of grieving. And you took us to like a detective mode. You did Facebook posts. You found friends. Can you tell us more about your process of trying to really get into her life? I think for for whatever reason, I really needed to understand um, where she was in her life and what that journey was like. Um, I I went back to where they found her um, the day that she overdosed. I went to the park um, where they said they, you know, I had coordinates actually to from her death certificate and I could find, um, they found her on a park bench and I found the coordinates and I found it was near a dog park. And that made sense because she loved dogs and she would have sat there and watched them. And, you know, I walked through the park to, to kind of get the sense of where she was, you know, in her life at that moment. Um, it seemed important to me to, you know, to be there with her because she, in the end, she was alone. You attended a substance grief recovery um, program to talk with other people who were grieving about their loved one. How did that help you? What was something that you learned from that experience? Um, Yeah, you're talking about the um, uh, grief, grief recovery after um, substance passing is the name of the the group. It's called Grasp, um, and they it's mostly parents who have lost children um, to addiction. And you know, I called them and I asked them if I could come, even though it was my niece, it wasn't my my daughter. And they said, of course, you can you can come and be with us. Um, and I think what I found there really is that we all had the same questions. We all you know didn't know why so and so's daughter could recover you know, and mine couldn't and, you know, why it started and, you know, why they couldn't stop. And, you know, that continuing, you know, story of why, why, why was one of the things that um, gave me, you know, the motivation to continue with, with this, this story to possibly help people understand more and maybe change, excuse me, maybe change the perspective on substance use disorder so that, you know, we can treat them as still as our loved one that they are not as a pariah, not as, you know, someone who doesn't deserve help because they do. I, I thought this was so interesting when you went back to Kentucky and you looked at that town to find out more about what was going on there. What did you find out about the culture? Um, that's interesting. I I um I only spent a little time there, so I you know I hesitate to, you know, make blanket statements about the culture. Um, it seemed like there were two separate cities there. You know, one one that was um, affluent, and you know, people you know that were involved in the Kentucky Derby and and all of the um the great stuff that you hear about Louisville. Um, and then there was another side of it that was in almost in darkness. It would seem like they really, it was in the past. And, and as I looked for, um, there was a, that winter right before she died, I looked for a place for her to sleep because she was homeless. I found that there were many more beds for men than there were for women. You know, there was not much help out there, not much help, not much residential help or even outpatient help for 
people with substance use disorder. The only place that I seriously found was the Salvation Army. Um, and they did have, they had help there. They had programs and help. And it was the last place that I found a place for Cheryl to be, um, at least, at least have a bed to sleep in. Um, but there wasn't enough and in the city and there certainly wasn't in, um, in Kentucky itself, as far as I, my research showed me. What is the overall message you want the reader to take away with once they finish reading this book? To not look at p- people in their lives, their loved ones, um, as if they should throw them away if they have substance use disorder. They they can recover. I've, I've seen it. I've heard it. Um, and and to love them as you do and to still to still love them it's very very difficult because they will lie and you know that <clears throat> excuse me and it's it's very it's a very hard thing to keep the perspective of who that person really is inside when they have this this issue that is coloring their whole life but you know as i said in the in the book i thought love was not enough i think love is enough if you can, you know, over overcome um, the feeling of uh, you can't make a difference in their life. And I, I believe you can. You know, you did another really interesting thing before I let you go. I want you to tell us about when you went to do a criminal background check, did you find some things that you were not aware of? Oh, yeah, absolutely found things I was not aware of um, in both, you know, Cheryl's uh, background, um, you know, some of the uh, arrests that were made before, you know, I knew about them because my I I thought my sister was telling me things that were going on, but she really was kind of um, not telling me all of the bad stuff that was going on for you know being arrested for theft and prostitution and um, you know those those details through the years that I was not aware of. Um, I also you know looked at. Um, the person who, who did perpetrate the sexual abuse, which was, um, my sister's husband at the time, um, and found out that he was living, you know, near them the whole time, which was very upsetting. Um, and that he had a criminal background from the very beginning. So yeah, that was very eye opening. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. I I want you to tell us what did you gain personally from writing this book that you hope others would have that experience? I, I gained an understanding that this is not a simple issue. It is very complex and that there are ways to approach it that work. Um, there's counseling. There's now medically assisted treatment that's available, I think, more than it had been in certain in certain states, in certain areas, um, there's uh, buprenorphine, um, suboxone, I guess is the uh, brand name. Um, and that if uh, people are aware of this and are prepared, that they can make a difference in people's lives. And as I said, I think it's it's important to to treat them as human beings and people that are worthy of your help. Well, can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? 
Well, right now I'm, I'm working on the audiobook for White Flag. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I'll get that done in the next month or so. So that's, uh, that's next on my, my list. Um, I'm not, I don't have another big project on the table at the moment, you know, possibly smaller writing projects. Well, we'll be looking forward to the audio book. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me.